In Helsinki, the president was alone with Vladimir Putin for two hours, more than two hours, with only translators. Basically, how do you know what happened? You were on the dark side of the moon. How do you have any idea what happened in that meeting? Well, you're right. I don't know what happened in that meeting. That was Dan Coats, the director of national intelligence, responding to questions from Andrea Mitchell during an interview at the Aspen Security Forum. The Aspen Security Forum is an annual event uh, in which uh, U.S. national security officials, intelligence agency leaders, government contractors, and journalists all schmooze with each other uh, and discuss the pressing issues of the day. But this year's forum was truly extraordinary, coming on the heels of the giant controversy that erupted this week over the Trump-Putin summit in Helsinki. And Skaldugary is here at the forum to report to you on some really amazing and revealing moments that have taken place. Mike, we've been coming to this conference for years now uh, in this bucolic setting nestled in the uh, Aspen Mountains. Um, And it's always interesting. Um, But as you say, uh, uh, this time it's really been extraordinary. Um, And particularly because uh, a number of really high level uh, Trump national security officials uh, really, uh, you know, sort of uh, push back against uh, their own president. Yeah. Well, Uh, well, first of all, let's start with Coates. Obviously, Coates had really given a brush back to the president uh, right after his uh, comments seeming to dismiss uh, the uh, Russian role in the election. Um, You know, he issued his statement. So he comes here to uh, Aspen right on the heels of that, uh, gets questioned by Andrea Mitchell. It's clear, first of all, that the top U.S. intelligence official in the country doesn't know what the president uh, talked about with the president of Russia. Um, You would think that is uh, a giant headline in and of itself. And then and by the way, let me just say this is not the first time um, that that, that this sort of thing happened uh, with with Trump and his national security team. he also criticized uh, the president for remember that meeting that Trump had in the Oval Office with the Russian foreign right, minister right. and um, the Russian ambassador in which he uh, went after Comey. Um, well, there was nobody else in that meeting. There was no no right. advisors. There were, right. you know, and 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 he and he said he wouldn't have done it that way. Right. Right, right. And, and then just he went on later in the interview, uh, Andrea Mitchell gets breaking news that the president has invited uh, uh, Putin for another summit in the uh, in Washington this fall. And what's uh, so Coates he's reacting response? to it yeah. in real time. Yeah. And this is what he says. Say that again. Did I hear you right? And then he and then he says, that's going to be special. Yeah, right. Uh, special it will be. Uh, By the way, uh, this yeah. did not uh, uh, go down uh, particularly well uh, back at the White House. And our friend and, and uh, right. colleague at the Washington uh, Post, Shane Harris, and a couple of other reporters wrote a pretty good mm-hmm. story about uh, about how the White House reacted to it um, and speculating that uh, – uh, that uh, that uh, Dan Coates's uh, days may be numbered. Yeah, well, to have a uh, a, a director of national intelligence uh, that frozen out of what the uh, the White House is doing not a good is, sign is is not good. But look, there were also uh, some uh, really interesting appearances by FBI Director Christopher Wray uh, and Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein, two people right in the middle of the whole Trump 
Mueller investigation. Um, Ray was asked here by Lester Holt of NBC uh, if he, in fact, as some have reported, had threatened to resign when the uh, Republicans in the Congress were pushing for uh, or demanding uh, turning over documents about the Mueller investigation. Uh, and um, Ray's response was pretty interesting. Uh, said, I'm a uh, uh, understated low-key guy, but that should not be mistaken for what my spine is made of. I'll just leave it at that. It was pretty clear to everybody there that um, Ray was uh, signaling, yes, he did threaten to resign, and yes, he will if... Um, matters go too far and by the way um dan Coates was uh, to protect the Mueller investigation yeah. let's be clear that's where uh, ray's red line is and and dan Coates was asked the same question about whether he'd considered resignation and uh he said uh, th- that's not somewhere he wants to go in other words he doesn't want to directly answer that uh question uh, and ultimately he said he will serve as long as uh he can continue to uh tell the truth um so uh, that I thought yeah. was also revealing as well. Yeah. I, the, you mentioned Rod Rosenstein, sure. um, and Rod uh, came uh, out to the uh, the forum. Um, he did not sit for an interview. He did not participate in the panel. Um, he, although he was quite jolly speaking to us afterwards at the, at cocktail, the cocktail party reception. Yeah. Yes, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Telling old stories about the Whitewater days uh, <laughs> when he was a Ken Starr prosecutor. He made references to that. I don't know if he told too many. Uh, yeah, any right. stories, yeah, he's a per- pretty careful guy. Yeah. But what was uh, sort of interesting and amusing um, was that when he um, was introduced and he stood up uh, at the lectern to to give his speech. He got a standing ovation uh, from uh, the crowd here, and a lot of the people in the audience were locals who live around here who were invited uh, to the event, and Aspen is sometimes known as uh, the People's Republic of Aspen. It's pretty liberal. It was almost as if uh, they viewed Rod Rosenstein as a leader of the resistance. Um, I think he was a little <laughs> surprised, although he had a good yeah. quip, was, which was, it's good to get out of Washington. Right, right, right. Uh, but, yeah, and look, I mean, R- Rosenstein is the guy who uh, is supervising the Mueller investigation. He's the guy who announced the indictment um, last week of those 12 uh, Russian uh, military intelligence officers for hacking the uh, U.S. election. Uh, You notice Mueller doesn't show up at all at these press conferences. It's all on Rod Rosenstein. He is the face of the Mueller investigation. Um, uh, So one other sort of piece of news that came out of this and then we can get to our really interesting guests uh, we have here today. Uh, Congressman Adam Schiff, ranking Democrat on the House Intelligence Committee, and Victoria Nuland, former Assistant Secretary uh, for European Affairs, who oversaw U.S.-Russia policies during the uh, Obama administration. Um, but before we get to them, um, one of the big questions, issues here is, are the Russians going to do again in 2018 what they did in 2016? Um U.S. intelligence officials have been and Homeland Security officials have been quite cautious uh, about saying, yes, they're looking for it, but they don't yet have evidence. I had a panel uh, uh, discussion. I moderated a panel discussion on this in which we had a guy from Microsoft, the corporate vice president, Tom Bird, uh, who talked about um, actions Microsoft has been taking to try to identify these phony Internet domain registries that have been used by the GRU to hack uh, people in the United States. This guy 
Sky Bird said that they have already identified and found three instances in which these uh, Russian internet domains uh, engaged in spear phishing uh, on the staffs of three candidates in the 2018 election. So that's the first clear indication we have that, yes, um, the Russians may be up to the same thing in 2018 and that they did in 2016. And the question is, are we any better prepared? Well, and clearly, uh, Rod Rosenstein and the Justice Department, I think, knows that this is coming because one of the things he announced in his speech is that they are going to be um, reaching out to um, congressional candidates um, to give them defensive briefings uh, about uh, this very scenario of of the Russians continuing to to meddle. You know, there is another piece of news um, before we get to our uh, terrific guests. Uh, that um, you neglected to mention, which is that the first morning of the conference, um, I skipped the first few sessions and I went went down to the uh, Roaring Fork River and I caught seven trout, four rainbows and three brown trouts. And I've got pictures. This is not fake news. The Russians had nothing to do with it. This is real news. The Russians have a long history of doctoring photos. Uh, and I think until we have some laboratory analysis uh, by the FBI of these alleged photos of Clydeman and his fish, you just, uh, you we just, should maintain uh, skepticism. You just don't believe that like a short Jewish guy can be a great trout fisherman. You know, <laughs> it's, bi- it's cultural bias. Um, on that note, let's get to our uh, let's get to the guests. We are joined now by Congressman Adam Schiff, ranking Democrat on the House Intelligence Committee, the guy who has been leading the charge for Democrats trying to investigate uh, President Trump's ties to Russia. Um, Congressman, welcome to Skullduggery. Thank you. It's great to be with you. So uh, this was quite a week. And... um, It began, of course, with the uh, Helsinki summit and the press conference with the president's comments seeming to uh, dispute the findings of uh, all of his own U.S. all U.S. intelligence agencies uh, and the Justice Department. Um, After that press conference, former CIA director John Brennan said the president's conduct was nothing short of treasonous and more than met the threshold for high crimes and misdemeanors. Uh, Do you agree? Well, there's a constitutional issue about whether you need to be in a state of war uh, in order to commit treason and whether cyber acts of aggression um, like we saw in 2016 and uh, that have continued to this day qualify as war. Um, I don't know the answer to that question, but uh, my focus is really on trying to get to the truth Uh, in terms of what the Trump campaign did uh, in combination with the Russians. Um, But it's also now, I think, uh, all the more important that we take legislative steps to push back against what the president did this week, Uh, and not just in cozying up to Putin and uh, showing a receptivity to delivering American former diplomats uh, to the Kremlin's uh, doorstep, um, but also the the wrecking ball that he took to NATO uh, and Europe uh, even before he got to Helsinki. How do you fix that legislatively? Well, for one thing, we have a defense bill that we're taking up, and there's been a push to give the president waiver authority uh, over the sanctions we've imposed on Russia for their election interference, for their invasion of their neighbor. 
Um, we sure as heck shouldn't be giving them the, this president waiver authority, given that we don't know whether this president is compromised by Russia uh, or has some other explanation for his bizarre affinity for this uh, dictator. Congressman, what we know um, about uh, the Helsinki summit is obviously concerning to a lot of people, uh, whether it's, uh, as Mike talked about before, uh, President Trump uh, taking uh, the side of uh, uh, Putin over his own intelligence community, um, or, uh, uh, you know, uh, at least at first, uh, giving some credence to the idea that uh, that that maybe Mike Mike Mafal, our former ambassador, should be interrogated by Russian authorities, but it's what we don't know that took place in that meeting between uh, Putin and Trump that is also concerning to a lot of people. Uh, how concerned are you about that? And do you uh, support issuing a subpoena uh, to the translator who was uh, in that meeting to try to find out what happened in in, in that uh, two hour session? I'm deeply concerned about it. Uh, if the president was prepared to essentially betray the national security interests of the United States uh, as well as our values quite openly, quite publicly in that uh, two-way press conference that he had with Putin, what on earth would he have committed to in private? Uh, we have to find out. And certainly the Russians believe he made commitments uh, on Syria, perhaps on Ukraine, um, there's a profound question, given the president's comments about Montenegro uh, after the summit, uh, whether they had a discussion of whether the United States would honor its Article 5 commitment to Montenegro. Um, so these are extraordinary circumstances. Uh, ordinarily, well, for, ordinarily, you wouldn't have a president of the United States basically tell his national security advisor, I don't want you in the room. Tell the secretary of state, I don't want you in the room. Um, tell his chief of staff, I don't want you in the room when I meet with one of our adversaries. Um, but under these circumstances, I think we do need to subpoena the interpreter. And in fact, uh, yesterday in the Intelligence Committee during an open hearing, uh, I made a motion that we do subpoena the interpreter uh, and forced a vote on it. And regrettably, the Republicans who sometimes talk a good game uh, under these circumstances, actually, I don't think they've even talked a good game. Uh, most of my House colleagues in commenting on Helsinki, have described it as a missed opportunity. This was no missed opportunity. This was a disaster. But nonetheless, um, they showed the lack of courage of any conviction by voting unanimously against subpoenaing the interpreter. So where do you go from here in terms of the investigation itself? I mean, you know, your House Republican colleagues issued a report a few months ago um, that you know, basically echoed the president's position. Uh, nothing to see here. No evidence of collusion. Um, you were quite critical of all the missed opportunities, as it were, that uh, you didn't have a chance to investigate. Uh, you were trying to continue the investigation. Uh, where are you on that? Are you able to speak to more witnesses? Are there any other cards you have left to play in terms of the mandate you started with, which was investigating whether there were ties between the Russian influence campaign and uh, the Trump campaign itself. Yes, the investigation goes on. And you're absolutely right. The Republicans at a certain point a couple of months ago decided that um, I think because the facts were piling up and looking too incriminating of the White House, that they wanted to shut it down. So they announced that they were ending the Russian investigation. And they issued a report that has been the subject of wide ridicule, basically exonerating the White House and 
uh, even contradicting the uh, unanimous conclusion of our intelligence agencies that the Russians not only intervened, but they intervened to help Donald Trump. Uh, something with they which did, they did conclude that the Russians did, in fact, intervene uh, in in our election. Something the president was uh, questioning as recently as this week. Yes, they they would admit the Russians intervened, but they right. would not acknowledge that the Russians had a favored candidate that they right. were intervening on Donald Trump's behalf. And of course, this not only contradicts what the intelligence community has found, but it contradicts the indictments that Mueller has returned, which. In particular, the social media indictment shows very clearly how the Russians uh, were weighing in on social media to help Donald Trump and disparage Hillary Clinton. Uh, you know, apparently they're making common cause with Secretary Nielsen, who also can't seem to get it right. Uh, it's pretty alarming when the Secretary of Homeland Security is not reading the intelligence because she repeatedly makes this false statement that um, there's no evidence that the Russians were trying to help Donald Trump. Now, probably the only honest thing that Vladimir Putin said during that summit was that, yes, he wanted Trump to win. But the evidence is unequivocal. Nonetheless, uh, they issue a report there, I think, immediately discredited by that conclusion. Uh, And then um, we learn more and more about witnesses that we in the minority had asked the majority to bring in, but they refused, um, like Maria Butina, uh, who we had a deep concern about, um, who was involved in um, efforts to establish a secret back channel through the NRA. Uh, and now we learn uh, through yet another indictment that uh, she is she was allegedly working as an agent of a foreign power, that foreign power, of course, being Russia. Um, we have called other witnesses in. Some have come in and testified, like Christopher Wiley. Uh, we had George Papadopoulos' wife, uh, Simona, come testify this week. Did you learn anything from her? Uh, we did, and I can't go into the contents of it, but... Um, she was very cooperative. Uh, but what we have found, because um, we had been inviting the Republicans to uh, come and attend these hearings, is what when we would invite the Republicans, they would get on the phone and call the lawyer for the witness or call the witness directly and say, please don't come and testify. Is that is, a, you have a specific example of that? John Mashburn. Uh, Mashburn's a key witness. Um, it's been reported that Mashburn... Uh, who was one of the policy people on the Trump campaign, um, received an email from George Papadopoulos uh, and uh, informing him that Papadopoulos had been told by the Russians that the Russians had the Clinton stolen emails. Now, this is a critical question. Who did Papadopoulos inform within the campaign um, that the Russians had this dirt? Is that why, weeks later, the Trumps were so... uh, um, enticed by the idea of getting dirt on Hillary Clinton in that Trump Tower meeting. Uh, Wait a second. There's an email from Papadopoulos to Mashburn, Mashburn himself, informing him of the conversation he had with the um, uh, ambassador, uh, with, with uh, with the Russian cutout saying that they had dirt on Hillary Clinton in the form of thousands of emails. There are public reports. I want to be very precise about this. There are public reports... Um, that report, Mashburn has said that he was informed by Papadopoulos, he believes in an email that he received and others on the campaign received, informing him of the conversation Papadopoulos had with Mifsud or others 
in which it was related to Papadopoulos that the Russians had these stolen emails. Why, so, we, we, why didn't you get that email? Because you, uh, well, that's the, a the, very, the campaign was supposed to have turned over all its emails. Very to you. good question that we would have liked to ask Mashburn, but the Republicans would not bring him in when they were participating in the investigation uh, because they didn't want to know. They didn't want to know who in the Trump campaign was aware that the Russians possessed the Clinton emails long before it was public that the even that the hack had been uh, accomplished. Um, so when Mashburn did agree to come in and we informed the majority he was coming in, they called him and said, don't come in. And he, he decided not to come well, in. Well, presumably uh, the special counsel, Bob Mueller, um, has uh, has has the, that email if it exists or has uh, had the opportunity to talk to him. Do you know if he's testified before the grand jury? Um, I would certainly presume that uh, Bob Mueller has interviewed Mashburn um, and whether he's appeared before the grand jury or not, I'm not going to comment, but um, I would certainly presume that special counsel has the information that we don't. Now, whether he has the email or not, um, there's been public reporting that the email has not been found. Uh, that, of course, raises other pr- troubling questions. You, but, mean, you mean obstruction of justice? Uh, certainly, if that email uh, were destroyed, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but here's the, the bottom line point, which is within our ability to do so as the minority party, we are continuing the investigation. Within their ability to do so, the majority is doing everything they can to stifle it because, as we saw when they were participating, they don't want to know the answers, and they don't certainly don't want us to know the answers. Their goal from the very beginning was clear, protect the president at all costs. Um, when they ended their participation in the Russia investigation, they didn't end their investigating. They just turned their full focus on investigating the Justice Department and the FBI and discrediting Bob Mueller, the counter-investigation. In fact, when I raised the issue of subpoenaing the interpreter at yesterday's hearing and got pushback from the chairman of the Intelligence Committee, we can't subpoena the interpreter. My response was, well, hell, you subpoenaed everybody else in the government. Um, <laughs> so, the, uh, Hey, uh, just one last beat on the Mashburn story. Uh, you say the Republicans told him not to come. Who told him not to come, and how do you know that that was uh, relayed? Well, uh, I don't want to go into the specifics, but um, we have been in constant communication with Mashburn's attorney. Um, and uh, immediately upon notifying the majority, uh, within, I would say, the hour, uh, we got a call from Ashburn's counsel canceling, and we were informed why. Um, immediately after n- notifying the majority that he was com- that, no. that he was coming. That he was coming. And we were welcoming the majority to hear what he had mm-hmm. to say. Right. Uh, and Mashburn is not the only witness that has informed us that the majority has affirmatively worked to discourage them from sharing information with the committee. Mm-hmm. So, um, can, can we go back just for one second to um, the uh, the Brennan um, uh, tweet? Uh, because you commented on um, the first part of it, was, which was uh, the, w- whether there was uh, treasonous conduct. Uh, but the second part of that was uh, that the, uh, the president's conduct may uh, reach the threshold of, of high crimes and misdemeanor. Um, I, I gather you have not been um, um, sort of uh, an enthusiastic advocate of, of impeachment. He, he, he wrote he wrote an op-ed in the New York Times arguing against moving to yeah. impeachment. Have, has the last uh, the events of the last week, uh, uh, the NATO summit, I guess the, the Helsinki, um, has that 
change your position at all on that on the question of impeachment? Well, on the, on the, peach, uh, on the question of whether the president has committed high crimes and misdemeanors, um, what I've said is we ought to wait until we see the full body of evidence, which only Bob Mueller has. Uh, and I'm not even sure Bob Mueller has the full body of evidence because there are things that we have that he doesn't, which is another problem. Uh, we have urged the majority to allow us to share the transcripts of the witnesses with Bob Mueller uh, because, for, for among other reasons, um, we believe they contain uh, evidence pertinent to the issue of both collusion and obstruction. But also we have concerns that um, it certainly appears that witnesses before our committee lied to us and committed perjury, and, uh, and yet the majority is protecting those witnesses, uh, even though in publicly revealed information it appears that they lied. Um, so no one has the full picture, but the one who has the most complete picture right now is Bob Mueller. I think we wait until the investigation is done before deciding whether it rises to the level of high crimes and misdemeanors. Uh, that's a really serious undertaking. That's a wrenching thing to put the country through. And I think the only thing worse than putting the country through an impeachment is putting the country through a failed impeachment. And uh, there are also political risks associated with uh, pursuing impeachment for, for the Dem Democrats. And this is something that you uh, have some personal familiarity with, because when you ran for Congress, you challenged uh, James Rogan, who was a House impeachment manager for the Republicans when uh, the trial of, of uh, Bill Clinton was going on in the, for the Monica Lewinsky um, uh, case. Is, is, that, is that experience something that has informed uh, your thinking about this at all? You know, it's certainly the abuse of impeachment in the Clinton case certainly forms my judgment. Now, the seriousness of the conduct here is of a whole different order of magnitude, mm -hmm. so I don't want to compare the actions in any way. Uh, I also tried an impeachment case in the Senate. We impeached a federal judge from New Orleans on corruption charges. He took us to trial, and I was asked to lead the prosecution in the Senate. And one of the things it taught me is not only is there a legal standard about what constitutes a high crime or misdemeanor, but there's a very practical standard. And the practical standard today is can members of Congress, including Republicans, uh, go back to their districts and make the case that the president's conduct was so incompatible with office that I had to vote to remove him. And this was not about nullifying an election that those other people didn't like. If you can't make that case, there is no impeachment, no matter how high the crime or serious the misdemeanor. So the, the other thing I wanted to point out about this, there's a reason, getting to your political point, there's a reason why Donald Trump is the foremost advocate of his own impeachment. He is the best champion of his own impeachment. He talks about it more than any Democrat. Um, and the reason is... Um, because he knows it energizes his base. Uh, so uh, he's got no legislative accomplishment to speak of. The tax cut is a flop. Um, and so he can't run on anything he's gotten done. Uh, certainly after the last week, disaster um, uh, in terms of foreign policy and national security are standing in the world. What does he have to run on except fear? Uh, and so he, he wishes to run on fear of immigrants and he wants to run on fear of impeachment. Um, and why should we play into that hand? But, but Congressman, uh, impeachment is also an issue that fires up your base as well in the Democratic Party. And if you do get control of the House in November, which seems at least a very a real possibility, if not likely at this point, it may well be, um, you're going to have to make some really tough choices on this matter because um, there are gonna lot of, there's going to be a lot of pressure 
from your base and from members of your own caucus to initiate impeachment resolutions. Um, you cannot wait for Bob Mueller forever. At some point, um, you have to make a judgment about whether the evidence is there because you can't also drag this out for the entire last two years of Donald Trump's term. So um, what's your thinking about what you will do when you become, if the Democrats take back control, chairman of the House Intelligence Committee and there are demands for um, to begin impeachment proceedings? Well, first of all, the Mueller investigation won't go on forever. Uh, I think Bob Mueller recognizes as much as anyone that he needs to do a thorough job. He needs to do a credible job, but uh, he needs to uh, get his work done as expeditiously as possible. Do you think he should end his investigation before the midterm elections? I don't think he should use political timing uh, as a factor in any way. Uh, do you think I, we'll I, get... Do you except, th- except this, he should observe the Department of Justice policy not to drop any surprise uh, before the election. But apart from that... Um, I think he needs to satisfy himself that he has run down whatever credible allegations have been raised, uh, that he has done uh, a thorough job, and that he can report to the American people that um, he was allowed to to do a credible investigation without hindrance. And uh, so um, I think he will finish in a timely way. Um, You think this year? I don't, I don't know. Uh, you know, in part, it may depend on the White House's cooperation or lack of cooperation. The White House has decided that delay is in their favor. Uh, their best strategy now, the Giuliani strategy, is delay, delay, delay. Dangle an interview with the president. Dangle, dangle. Keep changing the goalposts. Keep saying, well, now that this has happened, we need this before we could give an interview. M- Mueller doesn't have to wait for an interview. No. He can, he I, can issue his report on obstruction at any time. Well, he could. But if he feels that uh, being able to question the president as to his actions and motives is key to those judgments. As then, though he would get a, a real honest answer? I fully expect that he wouldn't. But getting a false answer is also uh, indicative of motive and intent um, and a corrupt intent. So, uh, I, you know, my, my feeling is based on the precedent that if Mueller subpoenas the president and the president fights it, the president loses. Um, the question for Mueller is, um, is the clock working against him such that the added value of the interview is outweighed by the delay that the Trump campaign would uh, and the Trump lawyers would would bring about. Back to my question, what's your strategy if you uh, get control in November? Well, you know, what I would recommend is is this. Let Mueller finish his job. Uh, let him present the report to, to the Justice Department, which I assume at a minimum will be provided to Congress. I think it should be provided to the public as well. Um, and then we can make a determination of whether it rises to that level. Uh, I don't think we should prejudge it. And uh, I would also say this, that I think Democrats uh, need to be running on a positive agenda, and we are, in terms of making sure people can keep their health care and what we're going to do as the economy changes and people lose jobs through no fault of their own. Um, These are, I think, the bread and butter issues that will decide whether we have a good midterm or a great midterm. But it's also vital that when we do take the majority, that we res- we govern responsibly. Uh, we may win the majority on the strength, strength of what a terrible job they're doing, but we won't keep it on the strength of the terrible job they're doing. We need to show that um, we're going to improve the quality of people's lives. Uh, Congressman, last week, Dan Coats, the uh, 
uh, director of national intelligence, uh, said that um, the warning signs, uh, warning lights are blinking red uh, in terms of uh, Russia continuing to, um, um, you know, launch information warfare against the United States and 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 potentially uh, our election that's coming up. Have you seen evidence that the Russians are continuing? Uh, to meddle in American politics um, uh, since the 2016 election? There's certainly evidence that the Russians are continuing to meddle by uh, exploiting the fault lines in our society, as they did during the election. So weighing in on things like Roseanne Barr and on the take-a-knee controversy. Uh, Yes, there's certainly abundant evidence of that. Is there evidence that they are... um, hacking election systems? Uh, is there evidence that uh, they're starting to publish documents the way they did in 2016? Uh, I don't know whether there is clear evidence of that yet, but um, we do see, and, and you know, right uh, here in Aspen, uh, someone from Microsoft um, revealed that there are at least three congressional campaigns that have been the subject of probing or spearfishing by what looks to be the same GRU people uh, or entities that were involved in the hack of the last election. And, you know, we should remind people that it was not just John Podesta or um, the uh, DNC that was hacked by the Russians in the last go-round. They hacked the DCCC, too. Uh, And much like the Hillary Clinton emails or DNC emails, they published them in a way that would hurt the Democratic candidates. Uh, And I think one message, tragically, that Vladimir Putin got from the summit in Helsinki is that if he intervenes in 2018, um, as long as he intervenes on Donald Trump's side, as long as he helps the Republicans, uh, he can count on Donald Trump not having the courage to call him out, not having the motive to call him out, and not having the courage to call him out. Um, do you think Putin has something on Trump? Look, that is certainly one very simple explanation for something that seems inexplicable to all of us. Um, why would the president? Why would the president undermine NATO? Why would the president undermine Europe? Why would the president? Um, talk about uh, bringing Russia back into the G8 uh, when they still occupy their neighbor. Um, why would the president do all these things? Why would the president deny the obvious that the Russians intervene in our election? Um, you know, it, it could be that there is just some pathology at work um, with him, that he is so terrified that his election was illegitimate that he is responding in this way. So maybe there's a pathology. But it's also quite possible that the Russians have compromising material on him, uh, that the Russians were laundering money through his businesses, and he knows that, and they know that. It's also quite possible that the president believes the Russians have compromising information on them, on him, because the president knows what he's done. Uh, and uh, whether the Russians do or not, it's enough that the president believes it. Uh, and uh, but in terms of the United States and our national security and our interests, what matters most is the president's actions, and he is acting like someone compromised. The uh, but look, the uh, when when James Comey 
then the FBI director told you, I believe it was in March of 2017 when he testified that there was an ongoing investigation into Trump's uh, and his campaign's ties to the Russians. Devin Nunes, uh, the committee chairman, said there was a cloud hanging over the White House. Here we are more than a year later, and we don't have any better answers to these fundamental questions. Um, does that frustrate you? And isn't there isn't it incumbent upon everybody to figure out what the answer is and reach a resolution? Well, here's the thing. We know a lot more than we did on that March 20th hearing with James Comey. The challenge, I think, for the country is we've learned it in drips and drabs. We've learned it a piece here and a piece there. And when you learn something that way, it is much more difficult to be impressed with the seriousness of what you're seeing. And, you know, what what I try to do is uh, put the pieces of the puzzle together. And just talking about a few of those pieces, we know that in April of 2016, the Russians make an approach to one of the Trump campaign's few foreign policy advisors, George Papadopoulos, using classic Russian tradecraft. And they tell the Trump campaign, hey, we've got dirt on Hillary Clinton in the form of thousands of emails. Now, this is at a time when the Clinton campaign doesn't even know the Russians have their emails. No one knows it except the Russians and now the Trump campaign. Uh, we also know that, um, well, it, it's reported when we'd like to find out, Bob Mueller knows that um, Papadopoulos may have shared this information with others on the Trump campaign. We know that weeks later, um, the highest levels of the Trump campaign are approached again by the Russians using, again, classic Russian tradecraft. The Kremlin goes through their oligarch, who goes through his son, who goes to Trump's son, who goes to to Daddy Trump. Uh, That's how a Russian operation would work. And they offer the campaign at the highest levels this time dirt. Um, We know that after that meeting, the message that goes back to the Kremlin is, we'd love to have your help, but we're really disappointed in what you produced at the meeting. And it's shortly thereafter that um, Julian Assange announces he's received the cache of stolen emails, which we now know came from the Russians. Uh, And we also now know, thanks to Bob Mueller's work, that on the very same day, albeit later in the day, because the indictment spells out with specificity, this is the one time I think the indictment specifies, specifies the time of day. Yeah. Uh, of, uh, after hours. Uh, after hours. After hours. We know on that the, on the day that, that yeah. Donald Trump publicly says, hey, Russians, if you're listening, hack Hillary Clinton's emails, you'll be richly rewarded. Well, they appear to have been listening. So whether if you're listening, well, they were listening. Uh, so you put these pieces together. We know an, a great deal. Now, they're still missing pieces. But we know a great deal. And can any reasonable person now question after this week's events that if the Russians offered help to the Trump campaign, and they did, that the Trump campaign would accept that help? Um, There are a lot of people out there right now who think that American foreign policy is in tatters. Um, You know, you you got what happened at Helsinki. You have the president uh, upending Uh, the NATO alliance uh, in London. Um, You have a two-hour meeting between Vladimir Putin, a rival, and and Donald Trump in which uh, we don't know what happened in that meeting. And most of Donald Trump's most senior national security aides don't know what happened in that that meeting. Um, This is a serious question. Do do you think that in in a real sense, uh, Donald Trump represents uh, a threat to American national security? 
Oh, well, I do. I absolutely do. And one of the terrible realizations of the last year and a half for me is that the damage that the Russians have done to our democracy by meddling in our election is nothing compared to the damage our own president is doing to our democracy by attacking the Justice Department and by denigrating our press, which, you know, in the same in the same full-throated endorsement of the Kremlin, he attacks the real enemy, the, the, our free press. Uh, so, yes, I, I think that he is doing enormous damage to our na- national security beyond anything the Russians could do to us. Um, and uh, I, and that's a, just a grave concern. I met this week with two British parliamentarians, and I asked them, what is the British view of the United States? What is the view from our closest ally of the United States right now? Do you view America as the same country that just made a terrible decision in its election, akin to what the British did in Brexit, or do you view America as fundamentally changed? And their answer was, look, we view this as, this is the guy America chose. And America may be the most powerful nation in the world, but it is not the leader of the free world anymore. And I have to say, hearing that was devastating, was devastating. Um, we need to reclaim that mantle. And as long as we have someone in 1600 Pennsylvania who doesn't represent our values, it's incumbent all the rest of us in Congress and around the country to speak out and remind the rest of the world that, yes, we do believe in democracy, and yes, we champion democracy, and we will defend their democracy, and we will oppose any authoritarian foe that tries to undermine their democracy. That is a legacy we are proud of. We fought two world wars over preserving people's freedoms, and we're not about to stop. Um, But yes, I view this president as the gravest threat to our democracy uh, that I've seen certainly in my lifetime. And the remedy for that would be uh, voting him out of office uh, as opposed to impeachment, unless, of course, uh, you know... uh, Well, the, the remedy that comes first is throwing the bums out of Congress that are complicit in this, because the other terrible realization for me of the last year was not just what a terrible president Donald Trump would turn out to be, but how complicit the Congress of the United States would be in the tearing down of those institutions. Congressman, thanks a lot for joining us on Skullduggery. We hope you'll come back. I will. Look forward to it. We'll be back with more Skullduggery. We are joined now uh, by somebody who knows as much about Russia as anybody who has served in the U.S. government in recent years, Victoria Nuland, uh, who was Assistant Secretary of State for Europe and European Affairs during the... uh, latter years of the Obama administration, but has a sort of three-decade track record at the State Department as a a diplomat. Um, Victoria Nuland, welcome to Skullduggery. Thank you. Glad to be here. So, what skullduggery are we doing today, gentlemen? <laughs> sometimes it's other people. Sometimes it's Isakov skullduggery. You know, yeah, it depends on I the day. We try to focus on the president of the United States <laughs> and uh, what, all skullduggery related to him. What <laughs> Isakov neglected to say is he and I have been doing skullduggery for some 20 years. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, yes, way, way we'll back. Get, we'll get into that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, so uh, what did you make of the extraordinary developments this week, starting with the president's uh, news conference standing next to Vladimir Putin in Helsinki? I think it was a great day for Vladimir Putin. You know, uh, President Trump uh, had the ability to go into that summit uh, holding an extremely strong hand. You know, if he had 
taken all of the um, increases in defense spending and capabilities that NATO has put on the table in the last bunch of years and wrapped his arms around that and said, I did it and we are united in dealing with the challenges to our democracy and security posed by Russia and gone into that summit strongly with uh, Vladimir Putin with a couple of key goals to make us safer and more secure. He could have had a great summit, but instead he unfortunately looked like Vladimir Putin's puppet. Um, and the the very idea that there he was on the world stage um, essentially siding with Putin over his own government, not just U.S. intelligence agencies, but the Justice Department that brought a very detailed indictment uh, just a few days earlier. If you were in your former position, uh, Assistant Secretary, uh, dealing with Russia, and the President of the United States had done that, um, would you have resigned? Well, as you know, Mike, I stepped down from my 32-year government career on the day before the inauguration of President Trump because I was concerned that in the campaign, and particularly after he had already been briefed by the U.S. intelligence agencies about what we knew about Russian interference, um, that he was not prepared to acknowledge it and be strong in defense of America. So, you know, I could tell already that the positions he, were t he was taking on alliance, allies, NATO, Germany, uh, on the one hand, our traditional friends and, and those we work with around the world, and uh, giving a pass to all of the nefarious deeds of the Kremlin uh, were 180 degrees off of everything that I had done over 32 years for five presidents. So I didn't think that he and I were going to be a good a good match. But Victoria, um, this week, uh, numerous uh, very senior intelligence officials and law enforcement officials, Chris Ray of the FBI, Dan Coates, uh, you know, have been asked this question. And um, it, it, the, the debate seems to be, um, well, you should, should you resign uh, uh, just as a matter of conscience um, or should you stay in because whoever comes after you could be worse? And, and after all, um, uh, this this president uh, seems to need guardrails, um, and um, and uh, and there are serious people in this government um, um, who are uh, you know involved in a very important mission. So where do you come down on that? Do you think that uh, these people should seriously consider resigning? I think it depends on the job. It depends on the circumstance. It depends on the influence you're able to have. I give enormous credit to Secretary of Defense Mattis for saving the NATO summit through a year of painstaking work to increase defense contributions, to stand up two new commands, to make NATO, NATO faster and more effective, to get to the front if we need to, to deter Russia and other adversaries. So he has quietly gotten a lot of good work done um, and kept his head down. And without that, this administration might not have uh, had a good story to tell on NATO had the president been willing to wrap mm. his arms around it. Similarly, Dan Coates, who we just heard speak at Aspen, I thought had incredible integrity in, um, first of all, saying publicly uh, that he disagreed with the president, that in, uh, when the president said the Russians, he didn't see any reason why the Russians did it. He stood up for his agency. He stood up for truth. And then today, when he was asked, um, you know, whether he would stay or what it would take to keep him, 
Uh, he said, as long as I can continue to tell the truth and act in good conscience on behalf of the American people and, and our security, I'll continue to do that. But every position is different. Um, it was pretty clear to me that I wasn't, in my old job at least, going to be able to influence the kind of preparation for a for a Putin summit or even a NATO summit that I had had with other presidents. Let's just go back just for a moment to that Helsinki uh, press conference, uh, the moment that uh, Mike was just talking about. And I want to ask you about what former CIA director John Brennan tweeted after that, um, which was that it was conduct that he called treasonous. Nothing nothing short of treasonous. My main concern was that a president, any president, and President Trump's number one job after being uh, elected is to defend and protect the American people. There is objectively a defense that needs to be done against this particular threat to our democracy. I wanted to see that summit address those issues. And instead, the president chose to defend himself rather than defend America. So I was really quite concerned about that. I think it's a a very, very good development that uh, members of Congress, uh, other influential folks, particularly Republican members of Congress, stood up and said, uh, this is not acceptable. And I think that part of that political pressure, uh, that's the U.S. Constitution in practice, you know, checks and balances, caused the president to, to recalibrate, and he's now essentially... Uh, recanted what he said standing next to Putin. There is, unfortunately, uh, another downside to the way this whole thing played out, which is that uh, Putin was hoping to strengthen Trump in the hopes of doing some business together. When Putin watches the president say one thing to him and then something else the minute he comes home, Putin concludes that Trump is actually not strong, that he is weak. And so we get the worst of all possible worlds, if you will. What exactly is the Russian threat? You know, Putin clearly and and his people want to mess with us. That's what we saw during the election. So discord. But what is the long term strategic threat from Russia? It's interesting, Mike. I mean, my view is that the United States right now is in an extremely strong position vis-a-vis the Russian Federation and vis-a-vis Putin if we would simply play our hand strongly. We obviously know all of the places where Russia is breaking the rules of the uh, of international comedy and not um, following international law, everything from their invasion of uh, Crimea and the Donbass region of Ukraine to their violations of the Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty uh, to the fact that they uh, supposedly went into Syria to help us fight ISIS and instead are propping up Assad and enabling uh, Iran to make vast inroads on the ground to um, all the nefarious skullduggery, to use your word, um, that they um, that they practiced during our election and in other democratic circumstances in Europe and elsewhere. So 
you know, we have a lot of things we've got to deal with with them. We also have great potential in this relationship, as Putin says. You know, we could be doing more business together. We could be helping uh, the Russian people deal with the fact that their economy is not in good shape, that Putin hasn't uh, brought them reform and a better quality of life. As you know, he just had to raise the pension age. He had to raise VAT taxes. So he needs money. We've got a lot of strength and power and leverage if we would simply use it. So, you know, from that perspective, I think it's the atrophying of American power uh, and the fact that Putin is trying to make the world safe for autocracy and change the rules of the road. Uh, That is the most dangerous long-term effect. Um, And he is in alliance with other autocrats who want to um, you know, re relitigate the the rules of the global system to their advantage and against us. And so, when the U.S. doesn't play strongly, no matter what administration it is, um, Putin gets all kinds of freebies that we don't need to let him have. Victoria, um, the reason we're having this conversation is because uh, the Russians um, in 2016 mounted a very aggressive um, information warfare attack on the United States and particularly on our election and our democracy. Um, you, in some ways, were one of the first victims of their um, information the warfare. First the first. In fact, David Sanger, um, our colleague from the New York Times, mm-hmm. called you patient zero. Luckily, patient zero lived. You know, the, <laughs> the patient zero don't always live. And we so here there here we you go. are. <laughs> very much with us. We're, we're very happy for that. Yeah. Uh, but I, I know you've uh, told this story many times now, um, but for the uh, benefit of Skullduggery listeners, uh, t- tell us... Tell us what happened um, and, uh, and, and what, what the uh, uh, importance of that event was, um, what it foreshadowed, and then we'll you know, ask, may want to ask you some more questions about it. Good. Well, you'll remember that um, in the fall of 2013, the Ukrainians were in the last throes of negotiating an association agreement with the European Union. This was not membership. This was association. They were going to get free travel. They were going to get free trade. These were negotiations that had gone on for years. Um, And their president then, Yanukovych, uh, had said that he would deliver it by the end of 2013. The Russians woke up a little bit late and decided that in their traditional zero-sum terms, you know, what's good for our neighbor can't possibly be good for us, we tried to argue with the Russians that there might actually be advantages for them. You know, if their neighbor with free trade had free trade with Europe, maybe they could do more together. Didn't wash. Russians didn't like it. They essentially went to Yanukovych and said, we will crash your economy if you don't change course. Yanukovych was not a strong personality. Um, He bowed to that pressure, the Ukrainian people, and said, you know, we're going to put off this decision, literally within a couple of months of taking it. Ukrainian people were outraged. Uh, The vast majority of them wanted this association with Europe, didn't think it had to be zero-sum with Russia. Uh, and they took to the streets. There were, people will remember, in the winter of 2013 and 24, uh, 2014, there were 250,000 Ukrainians on the streets of Kiev and smaller protests uh, in other cities through the snow, all of this, asking that they have this decision reversed. Um, and there was no, and there was uh, there were sporadic moments of violence, including in December and early January, and there was no obvious constitutional way to settle this. So what we were trying to do uh, was to, Yanukovych had been somewhat open to de-escalating by 
bringing, um, reconstituting his government, half opposition, half his party, try to find a way through, go to new elections, let the people decide about the course to Europe. We were trying to facilitate that. And finally, in January, Yanukovych agreed to create a coalition government, and he offered two slots to the opposition. But the opposition had had bad experience negotiating with Yanukovych and had him, you know, move the goalposts, and they uh, wanted an international observer in those talks. And we had been working with the European Union, asking them to please come and be that international observer. And we had waited week after week with, while the European Union couldn't decide. And finally, one Saturday, I was at home. Uh, the, our ambassador on the ground, Jeff Pyatt, called me and said, OK, we need to do this now. Uh, Yanukovych is offering these two jobs. The the negotiations are supposed to start you know, this week. We need an, uh, an, an observer to do this or the opposition won't play. And I used a barnyard epithet to just... This is a podcast. <laughs> you can say it. Or, or Mike will say it on your behalf. Yeah, yeah, I'm me. not going to say it again. But anyway, I, I was... My frustration with the All EU right. came forward. Right. <laughs> <laughs> the assistant secretary said, fuck the EU. And <laughs> let's go on and use the UN as the mediator. Now, I, of course, knew the Russians were listening. I thought maybe they would be... In, you know, that we wanted them to have transparency about what we were doing. Um, so I, it wasn't a matter so of counterintelligence. So that they were listening wasn't, su- wasn't a surprise to you. Correct. But what happened was deeply surprising to you. So two weeks later, um, they uh, put this telephone call out in public. And the, it had been about 25 years since they had put a private phone call out on the street. And it that was, was an old Soviet tactic totally, uh, years yeah, ago. Yes. Right. And it was clearly designed to discredit me, to discredit American diplomacy, to... Uh, you know, it was, it was disinformation in the sense that the way it was spliced and diced sounded like I had a much bigger indictment against the EU as an institution when here I was, you know, doing American diplomacy towards the EU. So I had to uh, apologize to everybody on the planet, Europeans, Ukrainians, <laughs> whatever. Uh, luckily, uh, President Obama saw it for what it was. Um, and it didn't work, actually. I think it made me somewhat stronger in, in the system. But as we say, patient zero, it was the first instance of a overt, um, you know, attack on our diplomacy, our efforts uh, with another country. And did you realize that at the moment? Did you realize that this was a kind of a red line or an inflection point? I knew it was gloves off, at least with regard to, to me. Uh, but I also thought that, you know, clearly there was a little bit of panic in Moscow if they have to resort to this kind of dirty trickery, that the Ukrainians might actually end up with a good relationship with the European Union. So again, you know, I saw it as a sign of weakness on the Russians' part, and but we you, played it that way. But you also thought, uh, didn't you, that we, that the United States government should have protested more forcefully uh, when that happened? You know, we we uh, we were pretty strong about what we thought about it, and we subsequently, as you know, helped the Ukrainian government um, get a fresh democratic start. The irony of it all was that two weeks after that, the European Union did come in, uh, and so the Europeans and negotiate exactly the deal with Yanukovych that we were trying to negotiate, mm-hmm. and Yanukovych would not stick it, and instead fled to Moscow. So, the whole thing was, um, you know. But just continuing the story forward, this is followed by the annexation of Crimea, the intervention in Ukraine, the little green men, uh, and you saw all the other things the Russians were doing in terms of information warfare, propaganda, disinformation, and cyber attacks. 
Yeah, I mean, I think that we wanted to believe, we had wanted to believe, and we worked very hard at it in the 90s, as you know, during the Yeltsin era, that it, after the Soviet Union fell, that when Russia began allowing its citizens to elect their government, all this, that fundamentally they wanted to be a European state and coexist with us and benefit from trade and knit in. Um, and I think we, we sincerely underestimated um, that Putin was never comfortable with our way of life, that he likes his way better, and that uh, he that you know he understood that if Ukrainians became more democratic and more European and more just and less corrupt, that his own people might want that too, and that was not going to jive with his own leadership style. So he felt a, a leadership threat as well. But the the uh, essentially what happened in Ukraine. Um, became a laboratory for what we later saw oh, yeah. in the oh, yeah. United States. Yeah. And you were monitoring very closely what they were doing. But for some reason, the uh, uh, the connection was never made that this that what the Russians were doing there, they might try to do elsewhere, including to us. So what why was that connection never made? What where was the break point? There were a lot of breakpoints, I think. You know, when um, it became known inside the government in late 2015 and more broadly in 2016 that there had been a mass hacking of the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, Democratic National Committee, uh, you know, to those of us who had watched the Russians do this to their own, to Ukrainians, to Eastern Europeans, the signature looked pretty obvious. Um, but our own intelligence community was relatively slow to uh, decide with confidence that the Russian government was behind that. They were even slower to decide with confidence when uh, the leaks began that those were also orchestrated by the Russian Federation rather than, you know, some just WikiLeaks on its own or something like that. Uh, we were not well organized for that. Uh, at the beginning, I think um, there was a thinking that maybe they were just stealing information so that they would understand or be able to pressure whoever was elected better. There wasn't a sense that they would actually try to put their finger on the scales. And then it was not well understood, I think, inside the intelligence community, or as well understood as it could have, that when you when you have this triple-headed monster, the ability to steal information and leak it back in, the ability to super-turbocharge it with the use of bots and other kinds of um, new technologies. And then when you've also done a lot to steal voter rolls and other things uh, which might allow you to target where you uh, do those influence campaigns, that the three together were a pretty toxic cocktail. Um, so I think that was something that we had, those of us who were watching this stuff intensely in Russia itself, how they manipulate their own population with regard to Ukraine, we had seen some of these techniques, but um, it was relatively new in the democratic world. Um, I uh, watched your recent testimony before the Senate Intelligence Committee uh, in which you talked about a lot of this and also talked about um, what this could mean for the future, not just by the Russians, but you also talked about how other nation-state adversaries um, 
might well or maybe already are starting to take a page from the Russian playbook. Yeah, the Chinese in particular uh, are uh, very good at citizen surveillance inside their own country. Um, the more you know about individuals in your own country, the more you can either manipulate their opinion or pressure them. Those techniques can be applied elsewhere. We know that uh, China is working very hard to acquire critical infrastructure, influence, uh, work with former pom politicians in, in Europe and elsewhere. We know that they are acquiring uh, similar assets in the United States, or trying to, including data sets. Now they want to know more about us. What sort of data sets? Um, I think I'll, I'll leave it there. Uh, but wow. suffice to say that, that companies associated with China are going in and, and, and buying... Um, uh, companies in the U.S., not not the big ones, obviously, not Facebook and Google, but some mm -hmm. of the smaller ones that provide uh, IT services and other kinds of dating services, et cetera, and mm. there, thereby uh, learning a lot about the patterns of individual Americans. Why do they need that information? Hard to know. But these kinds of actors learn from each other, which is why in that Senate testimony, um, I push so hard, as I have been for a while, and many of us who are patients zero or <laughs> one, two through six, uh, for a real presidentially-led whole-of-government effort to deter this behavior, to put in place regulations that harden us, and to uh, deal with it in the legal realm. Uh, as a way of making us safer, not just against Russia, but against China. So one of the problems when President Trump blames President Obama, who I do wish had acted sooner, but anyway, uh, he he uh, ignores the fact that he himself has been in office for 18 months. And where has been his presidential leadership in setting up this kind of whole of government effort uh, and in working with our companies on the right kind of reg reg uh, regulations, the right kind of legal environment, et cetera. So we've lost a year and a half in dealing with this in this foe. Well, not only that, they've you know they, they've abolished the people in the White House, the jobs of the people in the White House who would be overseeing it. There's no Homeland Security Advisor at the White House, Tom Bossert. It left. He's not been replaced. The cyber coordinator in the White House is that position has been eliminated. Um, it appears that there's really nobody in the White House to do the kind of pro provide the kind of presidential leadership you're talking about. Again, this has to be presidentially led, and this is one of the things we learned in 2016, was that even those of us who spent all day every day as consumers of intelligence that we had from all over the community on Russia, um, those, those of us in that position knew more than the average uh, folk. When the president finally, President Obama, in December of 16, ordered all of us to work together to see what we knew, there was so much of this elephant. You know, we had all been touching different pieces, but we learned uh, so much more by f being forced to work together. But that only happens when the president directs it. So it's really time for the president to start defending this nation against this particular threat and leading in that regard. Do you, do you think Putin has something on the president? Uh, 
I'm not going to speculate on that. Obviously, if there was any um, bad behavior when he was there in 2013, the Russians make a habit of uh, taping virtually every hotel room that anybody important stays in. Um, But, um, you know, what's more important is that the president's number one job is to defend and protect us. Uh, And it's time to stop litigating, you know, whether the election was legitimate and start talking about whether the United States of America is defended now. How how concerned are you that uh, President Trump um, had a, what, two-hour meeting with Putin uh, without any aides there, uh, with only translators? And do you think the Russians would have taped that conversation? You know, I don't know what kind of security we did before the meeting to, to sweep it, you know could have just been the the pen in Putin's pocket so you have to you have to assume that there's an audio recording of it if 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 uh if the Russians wanted that i think what's Putin has far more experience in all of this than president trump he is very good at recounting a narrative of grievance and uh telling history in a way that's favorable to him he's also very good at creating false moral equivalencies uh, that he can use to manipulate. So what kind of sympathy the president may or may not have shown for his state, for Putin's stated positions, I don't think we'll ever know. But, you know, this this one example that the president has now walked back gives you a snapshot of the way Putin behaves, where, you know, we've got a federal case against 12 Russian GRU agents uh, for their role in the hacking that the Mueller team has now put on the street with names and timetables and an incredible amount of detail. I encourage your listeners to read it. It's quite a skullduggery read. Uh, see how I'm yes, getting it you. Is. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yes, it uh, is. You're coming back on the show. <laughs> I want the T-shirt. Um, <laughs> we got it. We got, got you one. Um, and, and Putin says... Okay, maybe I got dirty guys, but you've got dirty guys like your ambassador. Good grief. So he creates this false moral equivalency. And if you don't stand up to that kind of behavior, um, then the other guy steals a route. You had a saying that I think it's a quote from Lenin. You used it in your uh, testimony, testimony, but I'd heard it from others who worked with you. Uh, Why don't you tell us what it is and what it means? So this uh, saying is attributed to Lenin, whether that's true or not, I don't know. But that, but he is uh, ascribed to have said, thrust in the bayonet. If you hit bone, stop. If you hit mush, push. <laughs> so we just can't be mush now. We can't. By the way, you, you just made a reference to Mike Mafal, the, the, uh, former, uh, our former ambassador to Russia, uh, and uh, uh Putin has uh, basically requested that that uh, the Russian authorities be allowed to interrogate him. Yeah. Uh, and the White House, Sarah Sanders, when she was asked about this, did not rule it out. You're a veteran. I think to, they, then they walked that back. Okay, in the next but day, that was which the first reaction. The pattern they have. Right? Yeah. yeah. So it took the president three days to decide allowing his own diplomats working in the white, not, you know, even intelligence professionals, which would be the equivalent, uh, to be interrogated by a set of who knows who, (laughs) and we know how Russian justice is. Um, It took him three days to decide that was a bad idea. Um, 
I was gratified to see that um, Mike Pompeo's State Department immediately called it absurd. And I think they did that because they knew that probably a vast majority of the diplomatic service would walk off the job if they had to worry about being um, turned over on false charges to a foreign country. Final question. Uh, the White House has announced that Putin is invited to come to the United States for a yet another summit with the president this fall. Um, what do you make of that? And if should this summit take place? And if it does, what should the president do? Well, President Trump certainly needs a do-over. Even his own political party and most of the Congress agree with that. So if this uh, next encounter results in the kind of well-prepared meeting where we make serious proposals, you know, the Russians want an extension of the new START nuclear treaty. Well, we want them to come back into compliance with the treaty that they're violating. That's the kind of trade you can make. If it results in really well-prepared um, work, then it is a good thing because only Putin can make decisions. But uh, it needs to start with stern and firm warnings to Putin that the United States uh, will not allow further interference in our election. So what I want to know is what's the exact date uh, as compared <laughs> to the 2018 yeah. midterms. Good, uh, uh, good point. And perhaps uh, the president can also invite Putin to bring those 12 GRU officers who were indicted uh, over to the United States for... Uh uh, for trial. Uh, Victoria Newland, thanks for joining us on Skullduggery. Uh, we hope you'll come back. Thanks, guys. Thanks to Congressman Adam Schiff and Victoria Newland for joining us on this week's episode from the Aspen Security Forum. And a big thank you to the Aspen Institute for letting us record in their awesome podcast studio. Don't forget to subscribe to Skullduggery on Apple Podcasts wherever you listen to your podcasts, and tell us what you think. Leave a review. And Skullduggery is also on SiriusXM. Subscribers can catch the latest episode on POTUS Channel 124 every Saturday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, with replays at 10 p.m. on Saturday, and Sundays at 2 a.m. and 1 p.m. Eastern Time. We'll talk to you next week. 